I'm Hemant Metta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Chris Shelton spent 27 years in the Church of Scientology. He attained those high levels that you only hear about in HBO documentaries. But he got out about three years ago and is now a vocal critic of the Church. He just published a book called Scientology, A to Zeno. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on having a book with an excellent pun in the title. I'm pro-pun at all times. <laughs> um, so let's, Well, thank you very much. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the Church of Scientology? Were you born into it? Did you come in on your own? I was pretty much born into it in that my parents got involved when I was very young, like four years old, and so I was around it my entire life pretty much, but I didn't formally start doing classes and become a member until I was 15 years old. Would you say you jumped, you got in by any kind of choice, or do you think you were really, much, really very much indoctrinated? Well, I was definitely indoctrinated from a young age on the principles of Scientology. I mean, I just grew up with them. Um, and those weren't necessarily, at least as far as my exposure to it, those weren't, you know, horrible things, telling the truth, being honest, that sort of thing with how my parents raised me. But, um, you know, when I was 15 is when my dad suggested I go actually check it out for myself and see what it was all about. And that's when they, they did their standard indoctrination, the church did on, on getting you sucked into it, and that's when they started preying on my vulnerabilities and that sort of thing. So tell us about your early experiences as you were kind of, you know, as a teenager getting involved in it. Was it, did it feel welcoming or did it feel creepy right off the bat? No, it, they, they, they take great pains to make it feel very welcoming. There is no creep factor. <laughs> um, if you're not going in there with your eyes wide open, then it looks like a very accepting very open group and of course they have you open up right away the whole the whole uh the way the con works is when you go in they have you do this personality test which i did and they and you answer all these questions and they sit down and and go over your personality with you that's been graphed out as though it's all very scientific it's not but they make it look like it is <laughs> and you start opening up and talking about yourself and um as a 15-year-old, you know, teenage boy, you know, I was probably already an open book. I was shy. I was introverted. I was kind of nerdy. I couldn't get dates. And so I start talking about this, and the woman who's doing my test evaluation is, like, telling me, you know, I say, well, she says, so you're kind of shy, huh? And I said, oh, yeah. And she goes, and you kind of have a hard time getting dates, huh? And I said, oh, my God, how do <laughs> you know? She knows you. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm floored that she can figure all this out about me, right? <laughs> and then she says the magic words, and this is totally where they got me. She looks at me and very meaningfully, and she says, we have a class that will handle that for you. That's and like a magic did. potion when you're a teenage boy. I it say this all from experience. Though. It was huge. <laughs> you know what? You have something I can do that will get me dates? You know? <laughs> That's a really powerful thing to tell an awkward high schooler. I 
I might know something totally. about this. You know what I mean? Like that gives me the EBGs. Man, that's powerful stuff. That's <laughs> straight up creepy that they would say that, but that is I can see how that would work. Yeah, and it and no matter who you are, when you walk in there and you do one of these tests and you start opening up to them, they use whatever your vulnerability is to feed you this line that they have some service that they can give you and it's really cheap and it will totally handle whatever that problem is. And did it? And that's how they reel a person in. Yeah, did it work? Well, yes and no. And I actually talk about this in my book a little bit because what happened was, yes, I thought that I could communicate better after doing this communications course. That's, Mm -hmm. That's what they gave me. And I held my head a little higher, and I and I looked people in the eye when I spoke. But guess what? I was saying the same dorky stuff I was saying before. <laughs> so no, I wasn't getting any more dates. You know, I didn't. I I wasn't a suddenly a ladies' man in high school. You know? <laughs> so it. So you know, on on there's a you know there's a, this confirmation bias, right? Mm-hmm. That happens with people. Sure. Where you you know you you take things and you make them fit your worldview or or whatever the view is that you want to have and so because I was told this class was going to make me a better communicator and make me better in life I then you know fed into that with anything that looked like it was better for me well then obviously Scientology was working mm-hmm. you see and that's what and that's unfortunately what a lot of people do with it you know so they become convinced that this thing is working and producing results for them. But if you actually step back objectively and look at their life, it's really not a whole lot different than it, than it would have been without Scientology. In a sense, Except you're saying it's... they have less money. Well, yeah. <laughs> in a sense, you're kind of saying it's a lot like someone who believes in psychics that, you know, you'll believe, if you want to believe what the psychic is telling you, you'll see everything as a hit and you just ignore all yeah. of the misses. And it just keeps That's going. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly right. So and, you... and you get people who years later even come out of Scientology. I've talked to people in the ex-Scientology community who are still convinced, you know, that it that it that it actually did wonders for them. But but you look at their life and you look at how things have gone and you see it's not it's not really that different. So you yeah. were 15 when you officially kind of entered the Church of Scientology, and you left 27 years later. That's like the early yep. 40s. I'm wondering at what point in in your life, did you start hearing that people outside of the church were criticizing the church? Because I have to think that's a more recent phenomenon. Yes, on a broad scale, that's true. When I was in high school, I dealt with a certain amount of criticism from fellow students at school and whatnot, but nothing really educated or knowledgeable, so it was easy to ignore them. It really hit like the main line, like it was really obvious something was going on in 2008 when Anonymous hit the line because Anonymous was was doing worldwide protests of Scientology outside Scientology churches all over the world. And that simply could not be ignored. That was not one newspaper article or a Time magazine article. That was in-your-face protesting and criticism. And they weren't ignorant like the other people might have been? 
I'm sorry, they weren't, I'm sorry, they weren't You what? said, you said that, like, you know, when you're 15 or something, your classmates don't know anything about Scientology. You can ignore them. Was there something right. anonymous was saying that you're like, oh, they actually know what they're talking about? Well, um, yes and no. I was still very much in the church in 2008, and I, and we were not allowed to actually go out and look at the protesters. We were supposed to ignore them. We put curtains on the wall, on, on the windows, and close the doors, and we were supposed to ignore them. See, But they had signs that said things like, you know, Scientology has, has killed people or huh. – you know, because there was there was a there was a particular famous death in the in the late '80s of a woman named Lisa, or late '90s of a woman named Lisa McPherson, and Anonymous really you know really talked about that a lot, and um, and of course the money you know how they were very rapacious about taking people's money and and by 2008 I saw some of those signs and it became you know they just they were like planting seeds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because it, it would, it would I, I started connecting dots that I, I probably wouldn't have connected otherwise. It's funny you say that because Hemant and I talk to a lot of people who emerge from religions and like whether it's Mormonism or Scientology or Christianity or Catholicism or whatever, it's, it's always kind of that same story, right? Of like you hear something and it plants a seed and they get you thinking, which yeah. is the problem. You're not well, supposed to Well, that's exactly be right critical. because the thought control is, it's not generally appreciated by the outside world the, the the degree of control and thought control that exists in a, in a destructive cult like Scientology. Mm-hmm. It is it is tremendously controlled. The information control is huge, especially after, from my experience, after 1995 when I had joined the Sea Organization. I was full, full, full time working for Scientology. That's all I did. Mm-hmm. And they are very, very in control of the information you receive when you're at that level. So there's no internet access, you know, free internet access. There's no reading newspapers or reading magazines and whatnot. You just don't have time for that. And and they they kind of put a control factor on that. So the anonymous protesters uh, were, you know, like I said, they couldn't be ignored. They were they were huge. They were out there in volume and. And they were, you know, they had these signs and whatnot. And it was easy to ignore certain aspects of what they were doing. And we vilified them and made them out to be the bad guys. But some of those messages still got through. And and that was an important point for a lot of a lot of people who are now ex-Scientologists, that they started becoming exposed to that. You said you had made it to, like, the highest levels of the church. What does that mean? For people who that, aren't familiar with the church, yeah, that what that what I'm talking about there is that I work is that I worked in the C organization and I worked at um, a middle management, you know, upper middle management of the C organization. So I didn't make it to the very highest levels where, say, you know, the leader David Miscavige is located. I didn't work right under him, but I ha- I was exposed to uh, a, a wide panorama of of things that Scientology gets up to that your regular public Scientologist will never see. And so I kind of got a very behind-the-scenes look at at a lot of what goes on in Scientology and with Scientology and what it's trying to do with, you know, people and with the world at large that um, that really not, not everybody would get to see. 
mm-hmm. you know. And so you have a lot of public Scientologists who, who don't know about, you know, some of these things, a lot of these things, in fact. And so they deny it. No, it can't be that bad. No, that doesn't happen. You know, they have this plausible deniability, mm-hmm. which is why I wrote my book, so that I, and why I've been making videos about it is so I could share that knowledge and experience that I got from my exposure to those behind-the-scenes uh, views of things. So and give I us an example. Different... Give <laughs> us an example of one of these things that you knew that most lay Scientologists would not know. Um, okay, I knew that management, Scientology management of its organization was a, a total blitzkrieg of random orders and directions to the organization based on the whims of David Miscavige, the leader of Scientology. There is no master plan and, and forward strategic direction for this organization, although that's what their PR is. That's what they're told, right, is that there's this big master, you know, strategy to, to what they call clear the planet, you know, take basically make everybody into Scientologists. And, it, and it's presented as though it's this big, united, forward movement and it's not. It's a hodgepodge of insanity at the management level. And I worked at that level for nine years. So I saw a lot of different crazy things at that level, you know, in terms of how it's actually run. Did you find and, that you had to... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say. And so so Scientologists wonder why, why their organizations are not getting bigger, why there aren't more Scientologists. Well, I can tell them exactly why. And I, and I do in, in, you know, in what I've done. So when you are seeing this, when you kind of get a peek behind the curtain regarding like what Miscavige is saying and everything's based on his whims, are you continuing to justify it to yourself somehow, or are you starting to see the cracks? It took me years before I started acknowledging that there were cracks, because it's, it's the whole thrust of Scientology's indoctrination is that the organization is flawless, the <laughs> system of Scientology is infallible, and that Hubbard and, and its leaders like Miscavige don't make mistakes. So therefore, if there's something wrong or there's something wrong in the execution of what's happening, it's your fault. It comes back to you. Mm. What did you do wrong? And this is, this is dogma for Scientology. This is not just some sort of opinion or idea you kind of you know, get through osmosis. You are directly told this over and over and over again as part of the teaching. So you learn to question yourself, not question what's going on around you. And it, and it took years for me to start getting the idea that maybe <laughs> it wasn't me. Maybe it was what was going on around me that was wrong. What was the straw that broke the camel's back for you? Um, when I saw basically two things. One the rapacious amount of attention on money. Like it was just, it was overwhelming how much attention was being put on getting money from people. Um, And that developed over the years. When I first got into Scientology, it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now. It was always about money, but it wasn't so obviously about money. You know, there was this idea of selling courses and, and counseling and services and getting money for that. Now it's just a very blatant money grab. And so that became so obvious I couldn't deny it anymore. And the second thing was when I realized one day that I was having to tell more lies than I was telling the truth about 
working conditions, about recruiting people into Scientology, about what it was like. Mm. And and it just hit me one day, wow, I'm I'm really actively deceiving people because I'd 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 grown into this headspace where that's how you have that's what you have to do in order to tell acceptable information to people so that they'll come on board. Mm-hmm. And I realized I never wanted to do that. I, I was always about, you know, truth and honesty. And so when I realized that my day was more deception than truth, I realized I needed to to make a change. So I know we can never know the answers to these, but in your opinion, Miscavige and even up to Hubbard, do you think they believed what they were saying or are they just kind of shrewd businessmen who know knew how to make a zillion dollars? It is a complex question, and and I actually took a whole chapter in my book to discuss this exact thing because it's it's complicated. Hubbard did believe in a lot of what he put forward, and at the same time, he knew he was deceiving people. Mm-hmm. So it's a nuanced answer, right, because there were aspects of what he was doing that he thought were working and that he thought were improving himself and maybe other people. I don't think he cared too much about other people, but he, he put it out there for you know to, to make it look like he did. But as the years progressed from the 50s into the 60s and the 70s, Hubbard's mental condition deteriorated, and he ended up believing all of it. Oh. And he died, you know, a, a very sad, broken man because what he was pushing didn't work and doesn't actually make people better. But he thought it would, and he thought it did, and you know, and in the end, he he died a failure. And now the current leader, David mm-hmm. Miscavige, was born and raised in Scientology, or not born into it, but raised with it, has known nothing else his entire life except uh, Scientology. And I believe, simply because this is my opinion, that he is not a true believer at this point. I think he knows that. It's something that's being put over on people, and he's running the show simply for the money and the power that he gets from it. That's my opinion. So at what point do you think does leadership, like, what percentage of people are true believers, and at what point of, especially in, like, management, upper management, are have those people kind of seen the light and are just going along with it because of the crazy amount of money that it's pulling in? Well, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but I think Miscavige is the only one who actually sees that. I think the other people at that level of, at those highest, highest levels of Scientology management are true believers because they're not the ones making money and profiting from it. It's a a very bad situation at the international headquarters of Scientology right now. Miscavige is the one who, who gets all the benefits and the glory and the money and the power and he subjugates everybody under him and treats them very, very badly. There are there are human rights abuses that occur at that international base, and um, it's not it's not good for them. So over the past couple of years, we've seen the New Yorker article, the book, the HBO mm-hmm. documentary. When you're watching, and you're out of the Church of Scientology at this point, as all of this is going on. Uh, what's mm-hmm. your reaction to watching all of that? Is it like this vindication that you were right to leave? Is it, uh, I don't know, are you mad that you didn't get to know about this stuff beforehand? Well, there are no words to describe the level of betrayal that I felt when I found out 
what I had been doing for 27 years was not what I thought I had been doing for 27 years. <laughs> it was, it, it was quite intense, my, my feelings about that matter. And it took me uh, a long time to, to get over that. And I'm still deep down, still pretty upset about the whole thing, right? Because that was the majority of my life and I was taken advantage of uh, unknowingly, right? With seeing these documentaries and seeing this work coming out makes me uh, feel very happy because the truth is getting out there and it's getting out there big time. Alice Gibney, Lawrence Wright, these are these are masterful story, you know, like uh, journalists and 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 documentarians and and the the people who are behind this HBO, you know, this this uh, this going clear documentary had like nine million viewers. Yeah. That is a tremendous impact on the world of truth getting out there about Scientology. What do you think would hurt the church the most? I mean, if David Miscavige has a heart attack, passes away or whatever, does the church continue? Is, would it take a tax, uh, a, re- a revoking of their tax exemption? What would it take to destroy the church in a sense? Well, I believe that the single biggest blow you could deliver to the Church of Scientology would be to re- revoke its tax exempt status. Hmm. Um, and this is this is also uh, a chapter in my book, and the reasons why are laid out in there. It is it would be a very very big deal um, because they would then have to pay taxes on things that right now they're getting away with scot free, and they have tremendous amounts of property all around the world and especially in the United States, that if they had to start paying property tax on that and income taxes and whatnot, it would be a a whole different world for Scientology financially. And that would be be huge. I don't know exactly what's going to happen when David Miscavige disappears, whether by hook or by crook. (laughs) I don't think, I think, I believe he has set things up in such a way that there is no succession possible. Um, really? I don't think he would take the organization down with him in a sense. Well, in a way, because he's put himself in a position where he will not allow anybody else to challenge his power or authority. He's kind of paranoid that way. And he's the one who has all the keys to the bank accounts and the tax attorneys and all of the, the financial and, um, you know, the real power of that organization. All, it all goes to him. So he's not like so, Steve Jobs uh, grooming, yes, you know, Tim Cook to take his position when he's gone. He, you're saying Miscavige is just like, I got all of this, and if I'm gone, you're all screwed. Basically, that's exactly what I'm saying, because he gained power in the early 1980s by staging a coup, and he pulled it off, right? Before Hubbard, uh, before L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986, David Miscavige was running the show. Hubbard was off in hiding. And so he knows how that could how that could happen to him. And he's taken steps over the last few decades to make sure no one is in a position to question or potentially overtake his power and authority. And so he has no succession plan. He's got no deputy groomed up to take his place. Now, he could change that, of course, but given his nature and the, and his past history, I don't see that happening. 
Interesting. So while you're in the church, you know, I've most of us, I think, learned about Scientology as adults or something like that. You hear what they learn or you see Tom Cruise's wild eyed interviews when he's yelling about psychology. (laughs) When you're in it, because when I learned about what the, you know, the tenets of Scientology are, it sounded with due respect, sounds bonkers. It sounds bananas crazy. <laughs> when you're in it, are you like, no, Zeno, no, that totally makes sense. Volcanoes, etc. Okay, well, in terms of the volcanoes and the Zenu story and all of that, I never learned about that when I was in the Church of Scientology. What? I learned about what? that after I left. It's like saying you're okay. a Christian. You're like, who's Jesus? Of, you're at the highest of levels of Scientology. How did that not get to you? <laughs> Because because it's confidential material. Uh-huh. It is the best kept secret within the bubble world of Scientology. <laughs> and it requires years of their counseling procedures and whatnot in order to get to that level. And it requires for public people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get there. So, you know, a few years ago, um, South Park did a a relatively famous episode regarding Scientology, but it sounds like there's such a small percentage of people who even have access to that information. Is there, is somebody leaking out information? How, How is this getting out if so few people know it? Okay, well, what happened was, actually in the 1980s, there were some lawsuits against Scientology where that information became part of the court record. And much so, much to Scientology's protest at the time, because they felt, you know, confidential, you know, damaging information. But it got in, it got in there, and therefore it was part of the public record. Not a lot of people actually knew about that, because of course it was, you know, court records, right? Who reads those? <laughs> so a few people knew. And in the 1990s, when the first chat board, chat rooms, and message boards came online. Somebody actually took all that information and put it up on the on the net and in, in these chat boards. Scientology responded by trying to shut down that that message board and suing that guy, and they actually raided his house with police. I mean, it was really ugly. Oh my god! But they couldn't get it down, and it stayed up. And information just you know on the internet once it's up there, it's nearly impossible to get it down. So it stayed on, and it got bigger and got spread around and talked about. So by the time Trey and Matt were looking into this whole thing, that information was accessible on the World Wide Web. And then, of course, in 2008, when Anonymous hit, they just splattered it everywhere. And I mean, as far as you know, because obviously you didn't find out through the church, is everything that South Park, Anonymous, all these claims, is that all truthful or accurate, I guess? Yes, it is. I have actually spoken with a number of people who did do those upper levels while they were Scientologists and have now left. And they confirmed for me one for one that that information that's out there in the public domain is the actual information. And of course it's in Hubbard's, you know, some of that material out there is in Hubbard's own handwriting yeah. or in his own words in the, in his lectures. So it, it's, it's indisputable that, 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 that is actual information from the church. And yet when you were in the higher levels of management, you didn't see any of this. You didn't know about any of this. Nope. It is totally 100% absolutely secret within the bounds of Scientology. It's incredible. It's a destructive cult, right? Yeah. So you have a belief system there. And when you're in that world, that belief system is such that you truly believe that 
premature exposure to that information, literally the information that's just on South Park, mm -hmm. will kill you. Hubbard said that premature ex exposure to that information will cause you to get sick and die if you're not ready for it. Wow. And you, as a Scientologist, actually believe that. It's ridiculous, but you believe it. It's kind and of so smart, evil, genius-y. From... Wow. I'm sorry? It's smart in an evil genius sort of way. Like, you may find that's out about this, exactly but if right. you do... <laughs> that's exactly right. Man. And so you police yourself. And that's mm -hmm. the genius of, the, of the, the secret system or the secrets in Scientology is that the members police themselves. They don't need somebody sure. looking over their shoulder every other second because once you accept these crazy ideas as true, you follow the rules because you think that's the best way for you to live your life. Mm -hmm. Do you still have a relationship with your parents? Because you said they were in the Church of Scientology. You no longer are. What's your relationship like with them if you're a suppressive person? Fortunately, before I got out, they did. Oh, good. Oh, that is good. Yes. And they actually got out in the 1990s, but they kept their status secret. It's hmm. what we call being under the radar. You don't announce it to the world that you left Scientology. You just sort of quietly fade away. And when you do it that way, uh, you can kind of get away with it, right? And you don't get declared a suppressive person and you don't get expelled and all that sort of stuff doesn't really necessarily happen to you because you're not out there making waves. My parents wanted to keep in touch with me and they didn't want to make waves. So they kind of just quietly faded away. When I left the church in 2012, I actually landed at my mother's home, and that's where I got my feet on the ground and picked up my life again and and got, you know, really back in touch with my parents for real because I'd been so out of touch with them because of my Sea Org and Scientology involvement. And now my relationship with my parents has never been better. What must it's, they have been wonderful? What must they have been going through if they left the church knowing that their son is still in it? They were not happy, and especially my mom. She and I have talked about this, and, and she really wanted me to get out. But the church has this disconnection policy where if you start speaking against the church to somebody who's in it, they are going to feel compelled to no longer talk to you. And if you are really openly a critic of Scientology, the church will force you to disconnect from that person. And it doesn't matter whether that person is a son or daughter or mother or grandmother, business associate, you best friend for 20 years. It doesn't matter. You are forced to no longer have any connection with that person at all. They are out of your life forever. And that is used as a weapon by Scientology to, um, to control its members. You know, it's a, it's a psychological weapon and, it, and it's an effective one. They thought of everything. <laughs> they, they really did. It is a very closed system, and it's a very high-control group. And, um, you know, and I'd have a little bit more respect for it if, if one, it actually worked, <laughs> and, two, uh, if, you know, if it wasn't all about money. Yeah. But, you know, when you, when you get through the whole thing and you look at all of it, that's what it's all about. All right, Chris, one last question for you. Tom Cruise, great actor or greatest actor? <laughs> <laughs> Neither. I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, Tom Cruise, if you're listening, come on our podcast. <laughs> we have many questions. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris Shelton, your book is Scientology A to Zenu. We'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and uh, and shining a light on this really, really scary place. Yeah. Good time. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Bloomke. We hope you'll join us next time.